HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. And this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see, we see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Jake Merrick, uh, who is the co-owner and the toji or brewmaster of Sequoia, Sequoia Sake in San Francisco, uh, which was founded in 2015. And in 2019, only four years after their first production of sake, the brewery received both the gold and silver awards for best sake produced outside of Japan at the Tokyo Sake Competition. And Jake has been relentlessly pursuing the best quality sake, and as a result, he has successfully revived the original sake rice brought to California from Japan back in 1906 in collaboration with UC Davis and local rice farmers. So uh, now it's called Sequoia Sake Rice. So today we'll discuss how Jake got into sake and ended up opening a sake brewery in America how sake rice is different from table rice and uh, sake rice. There's a difference between the two, huge. And uh, the outstanding quality of sake rice Jake has revived, and Sequoia Sake is classic and innovative style of sake, and much, much more. But before you start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, which you will listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Jake Merrick. Hello, Jake. Welcome to the show. Hello, Akiko. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, I really do appreciate uh, your busy man. So, so first of all, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Those are great questions. Um, the simple answer was I was born in upstate New York. I think the more complex uh, answer, though, is I only spent 18 years of my life there. 
I've spent more than 20 plus, almost 30 years outside of the U.S. So what I ate as a kid and what I ate as an adult tend to vary greatly. But um, I was fortunate. My parents uh, coming from farmers, so we actually canned a lot of food and made pies and stuff. So I grew up with eating a lot of, you know, homemade uh, tezukura kind of uh, food, which was great. Um, not a lot of meat, mm. mainly fish, because my family was all Dutch. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So I'm just curious. So out of nearly 30 years, where did you live? I mean, what's your cultural experience throughout your life? Um, so half of my family's in the arts. Other half is in uh, education. And I realized early on that I wasn't going to make money in either one of those. So I went into the IT business and I spent uh, probably 10 years of my life in um, the Nordic states. So like uh, Sweden, um, Holland, Germany. I spent a lot of time over there working with uh, technology. And then I spent 17 plus years uh, on and off in Japan um, and also several other locations in New York. Mm, wow. That's totally very, very global. Um, okay. And uh, so this is a crucial question. How did you get into sake? You know, um, I was going to college and I got a scholarship to go to Japan um, and I got over there and I was working with a team and we're working on a big project. And at the end of the project, um, our professor took us out for uh, dinner. And before that, as a college student, I was just drinking whatever the convenience store had, cup ones and things like that. But when the professor took us out, he really treated us to some really good sake. And from that point on, I was hooked. I just loved sake. Absolutely loved it. Mm, right. Okay. And then... Um... So you studied Sequoia again in San Francisco uh, in 2015, uh, actually with yeah. your wife, Noriko Kamei, and the third uh, partner, Warren Fall. And so, um, and I, by the way, it's this really nice uh, romantic story. You met Noriko Kamei. Um, she's from Kyoto in Japan during your scholarship time. Yes, that's actually a very funny story. I'll probably get in trouble for telling it, but it, it's, it's a good story. So um, we're both going to the same university. Um, and I was heading into the uh, uh, headmaster's uh, room office to talk with him. And she was coming out and I stepped on her foot. And it was the same day she just got her cast off from breaking her leg when she was going uh, skiing. So I had to take her out <laughs> and apologize to her. And that's how we met. <laughs> well, lucky for her at the end. Lucky for me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Right. So, so going back. So, um, I mean, you, I know you loved the good sake that you tasted for the first time, but then why did you decide to open a sake brewery in America by yourself? Ah, that's a complicated question. I'll try to make it simple. So, um, I was living in Japan for 10 years. I'd started a business over there and I went and traveled all throughout Japan, got to know a lot of people in the sake business, because every time I went to a new city, I would stop in the sake brewery. Um, came back to uh, Japan. I'm sorry, I came back to San Francisco because my daughter wanted to go to high school here in America and was working for a friend's company and helping him get his company started. And they decided to move or got bought to go to New Jersey, which is on the opposite coast of California. And my wife wasn't so happy about moving to a cold climate. So I convinced her that we should start a sake business. So uh, that's kind of where the germs started. Uh, the other piece was that um, I couldn't find a namagenshu, which I really loved. So I started making it in the garage. And that's how the whole thing started. 
Mm. Wait, for listeners uh, who's not familiar with Nama Genshu, Nama, Nama means uh, um, uh, not fully pasteurized, so it's kind of like a fresher. And the Genshu is undiluted. So, yeah, it's just really harder to get here. So, okay. And uh, so, what is the philosophy of Sequoia Sake? Uh, so, again, I started making it in the garage because I couldn't find what I wanted. So my first philosophy was, is if nobody buys my sake, I'm going to have to drink it. So I have to make it good enough for me to drink. The second philosophy was, <laughs> I just wanted something that was easy, accessible, and drinkable, like every day, like you can get in Japan. Um, it doesn't tend to be that way so much, or at that time, 2010, it didn't seem to be that way so much here in, in California. So that was kind of our philosophy. It still is our philosophy. We just want an easy, everyday, drinkable sake. Mm, right. And uh, as far as I understand, you stick with organic um, ingredients too, right? Yes, we are very focused on local organic ingredients. Um, that's not only for the health reasons, but it also influences the sake. Um, our research has found that it increases the starch center when you use organic. It also increases the mineralization, which are two things you need to make better sake. So it's both health-wise and also the fact that it makes better sake. Mm, right. Okay. And also, I think organic ingredients tend to make uh, the taste of the product more expressive. I think it's... Uh, actually tastes better too. So that kind of makes sense. So, um, so how did you study second making though? Uh, like I mentioned before is, you know, I was very fortunate because I, I visited probably 200 different sake breweries while I was there for 10 years. And it wasn't that I knew I was going to be making sake. It was because I really enjoyed the product and meeting the people, uh, that were making it. So I got a, a kind of an education that way. But it really started when I came back here and I called up some friends um, when I got back here and trying to make it in the garage is really hard. And I asked some people if they could help me. And we kind of went to several small mom and pop uh, ones. But I'll tell you, the person that probably influenced, influenced me the most was Masa up at Artisan Sake. He's the one who actually uh, turned my head and made me think that I actually could do this on my own. Uh, before that, it was kind of a big boulder trying to push it up the hill, I thought. But he actually said, no, you won't lose the house and your wife will still let you come home. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so what was the reason though? You just had like a gut feeling that you can do it. Uh, I, I mean, this is the 10th company I've started. So I had no fears about starting a company. But this is the first one I've ever done in a, in a beverage, let alone alcohol beverage. I have friends in the wine business. So I talk to them about, you know, what are the hurdles about making wine and all these other things. And the cash outlay for that is just tremendous, you know. So I just kind of went through my checklist of what possibly could happen right, what possibly could happen wrong. And we just, you know, hunkered down and just slowly put this together and said, OK, let's let's give it a shot. You know, I think I think it does make sense. Uh, San Francisco is the third largest uh, area for sake consumption in North America. So I said, there's a good market. Uh, we got great rice, had some rice uh, experiences with UC Davis. So I thought, okay, this is going to work. I've got the basic knowledge. Uh, and I convinced my wife to uh, go over and start learning how to make koji. So she spent a lot of time in Japan learning how to make koji, which, you know, trying to take all the steps of making sake. I tried to break them up like an IT person would and say, okay, how do we compartmentalize these pieces so that we can do something in relatively short period of time, three years versus 20 years. 
Mm, interesting. I mean, not only San Francisco is a big sake market and you have access to UC Davis, but I think this entrepreneurial mindset is very San Francisco to me. So that's another big push. Yeah, opinion. let me just qu- qu- stop you on that one too, because that one I, I tend to forget when I talk to other sake producers, and I think it is uniquely California in the Bay Area, is no one asked me, well, wait, you were in the IT, now you're starting a sake business? You know, it was it was like, okay, yeah, you're starting a new business. Great. Let's try your sake. You know, so it was very encouraging (laughs) where I've heard stories from other people, other parts of the country. They don't get the same response. Mm, Right. That is true. If it's New York and you on Wall Street, it's like, are you okay? (laughs) Kind of thing. (laughs) So, wow, (laughs) that's awesome. So, um, but now let's just talk about your own sake. So what kind of sake do you make? Uh, we actually currently have 14 different styles of sake in our stable. Um, we primarily uh, here in San Francisco sell Nama. That is our biggest one. So we have Nama Ginjo, Nama Genshu, and uh, Nama uh, Han Nama uh, Nigori. Um, and those sell really, really well. But we also have our bottle pasteurized. So we do a bottle pasteurization for other sakes. Um, what we're probably also not well known for out where you guys are is we do barrel aged sake, which we take previously used wine barrels and uh, bourbon barrels and put our sake inside there. And we also do a few infused sake. So we have a uh, habanero, a uh, jalapeno and wasabi uh, infused sake, which also sell quite well. Um, so it's, it's a mm. wide, varied line of sake. And then of course we do our four different sake specialties for the sake clubs, which are exclusive just for them. Okay, so I'm just super curious. I, I'm looking at your web, website and then, then the cask, the bourbon barrel aged sake and white wine barrel aged sake, red wine yes. barrels. So what kind of like, uh, what's the inspiration and, and the motivation behind it? Because it must be really good, right? So what kind of uh, flavors do the barrels impart into sake? You know, I wish I could take all the credit for it, but a lot of this is just synchronicities. So the bourbon was where we first started. Um, we have a distiller here, uh, Seven Stills, and uh, we used to uh, go over there and they used to wash our kegs and do some things like that. And I'm standing there and I'm looking down. I go, what do you do with these empty barrels? He goes, oh, you know, we you know, sell them to micro beer people, this and that. He goes, oh, why don't you take one? So I took one, put the sake in it and was blown away with how good it tasted. And that evolved into a relationship with those guys and also Sonoma County uh, distilleries. So we actually use two different uh, barrels that we put our sake in and then blend it back together to get this smoky chocolate molasses kind of green apple flavor in the front of your mouth. But it ends with the sake yeast in the back of your mouth. And the great part is there's no burn. This is only 18% alcohol. So it, it really is just a smooth, beautiful flavor. Hmm. Interesting. I'm super intrigued. Um, so like, for example, I, one of my favorite shochu, uh, which is distilled instead of, uh, fermented, like, you know, wine or sake, but I think the rice flavor goes very well with, uh, the barrel flavors. So it's like a kind of traditional style, uh, barrel aged shochu. I taste it, but it's like, why not? <laughs> so I'm so glad you're doing these, uh, new style of sake. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy. We also sell the uh, barrel-aged uh, bourbon back into Japan. We have distribution there. Oh, wow. All right. So, okay. 
So,、uh, so I started to see more creative style of sake in Japan as well, such as、yes. um, use of flower yeast and more diverse style of sparkling sake. So, what do you think about making creative style of sake? I am all down for it. I mean, there's you know, talk back and forth about you know, where does sake end and a different alcohol beverage start.、Um, I, I, I'm old, so I can remember when、uh, micro beer started. And I think you know, the German beer makers would be turning in their grave if they st- started to taste some of the micro beer, you know, over hoppy beers and this and that. I think sake is on a new wave. It, there is so much creativity here in America. We don't have the same limitations as they do in Japan about what is classified as sake. So I think there's a lot of room for us to grow. And I see it also coming back in Japan. There's a lot of young brewers right now that are saying, let's you know, not go all the way to Dai Ginjo so that there's only 3% of the rice left. Let's go the opposite way. Let's do something else. Let's do this. So I think there is a real vitalization that's happening with the sake world. It's like everything is possible. So I'm totally excited about that.、Mm, me too. Because at the end of the day, what's tasty is what tradition is. I, I think it's how the tradition continues, right? Because you can't get stuck in what used to be good forever. And the environment in America, like, I don't know how people pair the barrel, like a bourbon barrel aged sake with what kind of food, right? I'm very curious, which must be really good. So,、um, the chefs that have our barrel aged, it's a crazy across the boards of what they do with it. I'm just amazed from making cakes and chefons and putting chocolate and doing. All kinds of crazy stuff. It's, it's fantastic.、Mm, right. It triggers a, another further creative imaginations. So that's awesome.、Um, okay. So we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into Jake's new rice called Sequoia Sake Rice. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills, combined with the freshest milk available, created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Katayama, and my guest today is Jake Merrick, who is the co owner of Toji or Brewmaster at Sequoia Sake in San Francisco. So,、um, so sake, is, well, sake is a very terroir driven product. And terroir, by the way, is、um, uh, created by the whole environment where specific product,、uh, like Swaino Sake, and, and the environment includes soil, topography, microclimate, the human elements such as Brewmaster, like you. So, how do you describe the terroir of Sequoia Sake?、Uh, actually, I describe it in two different ways. One is where it is located, which is up by Chico, the actual, probably the best area for making or growing rice here in California. The, the, below the 
soil is this fantastic clay uh, area that holds the water there, which is fantastic. It gets great sunlight, um, not a lot of uh, water or rain, so it stays really healthy um, during the summer. Um, so it's really, really great climate. Um, but we also practice uh, whole earth organic. So we actually put all the organic uh, fertilizer on in the winter. So it settles into the soil and then allows the the rice to absorb the mineralization easier uh, while it's growing. And the mineralization is really key to the whole process of making good sake as, as far as I'm concerned. So that's kind of how I describe the two mm. areas. Right. Well, actually, uh, how soft or hard is the water um, in your area? The water is really similar to uh, Tokyo water in the sense of it's um, – we're using Hetchetchi water, which is actually snow melt water from the Sierra Mountains. Um, it's also why Takara located here in the Bay Area. Uh, the water is just incredible, good mineralization. Uh, it's just perfect for making sake. We do filter it out to take out the particulates, and we also remove all the iron. That's all we do to it. Mm, right. Wow. Okay. And uh, so... Uh, well, actually, you heard, uh, I heard that you use like an heirloom koji mold and a native sake yeast, right? Yes. Yes, we do. Mm. So, yeah, do not, right. What kind of like effect, like effect on your sake? Like, do you have any flavor profile that you use the koji and yeast as well? Um, so the Koji, you really have to talk to Noriko because she is like the Koji master. I totally go and do that. But she, um, let me just step back for a second. So every year when we get our rice, we analyze the rice. It takes about three weeks. I used to send my rice over to Japan and have it analyzed to tell us which one of the Koji works best with the rice that year. Um, but my daughter studied in uh, Japan for two years and she's going to school to get her uh, chemistry degree. So now she does all of our analysis on the rice and then passes over to Noriko, who decides which koji to use. And the koji changes depending on the, the sake. So like the barrel aged sake, we change the koji because we want to reduce the amount of flavor profile in the front of your mouth with the koji. But we still want to keep the sugar. So that, that is replaced with the barrel mm. flavor. So it, it's those complications that make it, you know, a little bit more um, hands-on and always changing a little bit here and there. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, and of course, you get from Japan, right? Just yes, we one do. One of those koji purveyors. Yes, it's right. pretty much all there. Okay. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Another thing, I, you know, talking about terroir, so the sake yeast, some yeast can be from anywhere, which is fun. And do you have any... Um, reason that you picked the native yeast that you're using now? So I have a friend who uh, helps put together, his business is putting together and uh, equipping uh, sake uh, breweries. So he sourced our yeast for us and he has his own uh, private yeast bank that he gets. And so that's where we get all of our yeast. Um, we pretty much focused mm. in on just five yeast that works really well with Cal Rose. Uh, we're now evaluating that yeast with the, the sequoia rice um, and seeing how that all works out. So we may be changing that a little mm. bit based upon that. Right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's like a puzzle and it's exciting to get the puzzle all <laughs> completed. That's a really exciting process, it sounds like. So. Oh, we're having lots of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
So let's talk about your sake rice. So uh, before we get into your new rice, uh, Sekiwaya sake rice, what is the difference between sake rice and the regular uh, table rice? Um, you know, nothing in sake is an easy answer, and the rice is even more complex. So depending on where you are from Japan, Arkansas, or California, table rice is a different rice. So most people don't know here in California even, we call cowrows as rice grown in California. There are literally every year six different varieties of cowrows out there. So before we got started, I tested 12 different rice grown here in California, which were all cow rows, but they have different numbers. So 205, 105, 206, uh, 401, and found the best one that we were. We like 205. And what people also don't know is rice in California actually is the great, 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 great grandchild to Wataribune rice, because in 1906, the Japanese citrus farmers came over and they brought table rice and they brought sake rice. And no one knows why, but in uh, two th- our 1912, when they planted the first commercial field, they used sake rice. So all cow rows can be genetically chased back to that same rice. So the biggest difference from table rice to sake rice, everyone talks about, is the starch center. Um, That's probably the easiest to understand, but there are a lot of other fundamental differences between the starch, uh, the structure of the starch, the protein, how much protein is there, how much ash is there. So there's a lot to go into this, it's actually a rabbit hole that I often find myself going down. Mm, right. So basically, sake rice is a bigger, um, part, bigger portion of starch at the center, yes. and yes. Um, which makes it easier for koji to get in and then ferment, and uh, that's really like efficient, also flavorful. You think it's like a, I don't know, other than the process. What's the benefit of having bigger starch at the core? Uh, it's all, so it's not just the bigger starch, it's also the starch structure. So this, uh, the koji spores can grow better in a certain structure. That's why Yamada Nishiki is one of the top sake rice, is because the actual structure of the starch in the center allows for better uh, koji production. And that's what also is, it, we have almost the same starch structure in our rice that uh, Yamanishiki has. And that's really key. It also is the center. So when you're milling the rice, you're milling in the outside and you're making it round. If the core isn't in the center, you're going to hit part of the core and then you're going to expose part of the core to the starch core to the uh, uh, koji spores a little bit earlier. So you actually do want to have a certain amount of protein because that's the flavor profile. As the koji is working its way through the protein, it's releasing all these flavor profiles that you taste in the front of your mouth. So it's a complicated little puzzle, as you said. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, so, but can you just elaborate just a little bit more on the structure? So meaning that just the starch is right in the middle or that kind of structure, or what do you mean by structure? Uh, no, the actual uh, crystalline structure of the starch itself. There, it creates air pockets, well, probably not really air pockets, but it creates pockets oh. that allow the koji to grow. And having the, the, the that structure and having it all in one center, it allows the, it, it to be more efficient in its growth of those uh, sugars and other flavor mm. profiles. Right. Okay, interesting, right? So, um, and then, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you have successfully revived the original sake rice brought to California, as you mentioned um, minutes ago. Uh, that was back in 1906. 
So, and you worked with uh, UC Davis, which is um, um, known for, it's a research university known for agricultural engineering, among many others. Yes. So, and it took you eight years to get the job done. So uh, what was the reason or the motivation for reviving the old rice species for you? Uh, a couple of things. Is one, I knew I needed to have a better rice than just Cal Rose. Uh, that was our probably our biggest delineating factor between, uh, again, forget all the education, just in terms of raw ingredients um, between Japanese sake and American sake. It was, it, you know, I love Cal Rose. It makes great sake, but it's not the same as sake rice. So that was my first motivation. Um, my second motivation was I'm just really uh, want to control every aspect of it from seed to bottle. So I wanted to make sure that I knew exactly what I was getting and able to control it. And luckily, the UC Davis was uh, willing to help us. Mm, right. Okay. Um, well, yeah, it's a good, great. I mean, they're all into new products and they are the best partners. So, um, and then you got, you spoke to someone at UC Davis. I'm, I'm trying to make it revive this sacrifice. And they're like, okay, I'll do it. Is that an easy process? <laughs> um, well, don't talk to my partners. They don't think it was an easy process at all. Um, it was very complex. <laughs> um, so UC Davis has uh, one of the only master brewing programs um, in America at a top university. Um, so I contacted them um, about what they were doing and seeing what they were interested in sake. That turned into another relationship talking to the uh, agricultural group. That turned into another relationship talking to the uh, uh, rice specific group. So there's a specific group there. Um, and then I found uh, Dr. Thomas Tai, um, who is specifically researching uh, different varieties of rice. So he kind of said, this is interesting enough. Um, they also recognize that the, the production of koji isn't just uh, something that's happening in the rice for sake. It's actually growing in a lot of other areas. Um, so there's all kinds of food production. There's all kinds of non-milk-based products that are being used for koji. So there's a lot of stuff research-wise that's going into food and koji, and rice is a key in, uh, ingredient. Uh, most people probably don't know that there's only one grain on the whole planet that no one is allergic to, and that is rice. So that's why it's such a key element. So it took me two years to get through that before we actually got started. And then I had to work with the USDA and California Rice Growers Association, California Agricultural. So there's many, many levels onto this eight years <laughs> that mm. got us to this point. Interesting. I think maybe you paid the weight for further development of local sake rice, which I think is going to be more demanded uh, considering there are more serious sake breweries in this country. So, yeah, that's why I asked the questions. Like, I have an idea, and then I want to make this kind of like similar to this uh, Japanese sake rice, and then how can I do it? So the best way sounds like you speak to UC Davies, and somebody may help you. That sounds like the best way. I was very fortunate. Again, I, I can't take total credit. A lot of this was synchronicities. And I think it's also just the dogma. I just really worked on trying to get something to move forward. So I talked to a lot of people before mm. I ever got there. Um, yeah, it's it, it just, if anyone's out there going to be starting to do something like this, it's just a lot of work, but keep at it. You can find people that are interested to help you. Mm. 
Right. I think it's in 100 years later, probably you're going to be in the sake book, <laughs> who is <laughs> kind of like a father of American sake, right? That's uh, Jake Merrick. Right. So, and also you got to be um, farmers, local farmers involved, right, to experience the actual sake race? Yeah, that was a really crazy th- thing. Um, so uh, that's actually started way before the UC Davis is talking to farmers um, about rice. Um, and they all tell me all cow roast is the same. And then I would make sake and show them that it's not the same. The taste is different. The way it melts is different. And then how you grow sake rice is different than even if you're using cow rose, the same rice, the way you grow it, the moisture you take it off of the, of the patty and then the way you dry it and then the way you get ready to uh, mill it. I mean, there's many more steps inside there. And that was where I spent probably a lot of time educating the farmers and the dryers and the people at the first stage of the milling before we went to the sake milling machines. So there's many steps inside there before I ever get to actually start making koji and making sake. Mm, wow. So, well, <laughs> it's an amazing achievement that you made uh, oh, that you revived this sake rice. It's not, it really means a lot. So, okay. Uh, so what is the difference between sake rice that you have used before and the new Sequoia sake rice? I mean, it's, it must be a lot, but just to summarize. Um, you know, it's it, again, I apologize. It's a little bit longer story, a little bit more complex. So when we made sake in Japan, uh, we're making thousand liter tanks and that's uh, 330, 660 pounds of rice. And in Japan, I'd get close to 700 liters of sake. When I came here and I did our first batch, I got 540 liters. And that was based mainly on the rice. And that's why I searched out to keep getting our rice better and better and better. So now that I'm using uh, uh, Calrose organic, I'm getting about 640. And with uh, Sequoia rice, I'm getting 680. Okay. So I'm getting closer to the number that we should be hitting. And a lot of that is based upon how the rice melts, how much uh, starch is inside there. So there's a lot of those key components just in terms of economics, but also in terms of the flavor. So Sequoia rice and most sake rice, you don't eat it because it doesn't really taste good. It doesn't, it's lacking flavor, but that makes it great for making sake because it picks up all the other flavors that you have inside the koji and you have inside the yeast. So it allows those two elements to really uh, shine through and show what the product is. And so that's a lot of what I'm looking for and making sure how that all comes together. Um, we've used uh, Yamane Nishiki and I've used, like I've said, probably 14 different other uh, Cal Rose uh, rice, but I have not used any of the other uh, sake rice that are currently available. Um, it's a little bit more complicated for us because we spend so much time in, in the pre-work. So before I ever start brewing anything, it takes me about two months to get the rice dialed into all the component pieces that go into making sake. Mm. Right. So it's uh, both um, flavor and uh, cost efficiency that you achieved with the new rice. Yes. 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 Amazing. Okay. And so how do you compare sake rice to Japanese uh, other superior sake rice rice like uh, Yamada Nishiki or Gohaku Mangoku? I haven't used Gohaku Mangoku. 
Personally, um, I've only used American. Uh, I've, I've tried both Arkansas Yamadanishki and I've tried uh, California Yamadanishki um, and did all the analysis with rice labs in Japan. They are real uh, Yamadanishki. Um, the terroir affects both of them um, and also the milling process affects both of them. Um, so they are fantastic. They, Like you said, they're just superior product making rice. Um, on the other hand, I felt that there wasn't enough flexibility with both of those rice. I think Calrose and our rice, uh, Sequoia rice, offers me a little bit more flexibility where I can play around and use different kochi uh, spores and different yeast and do some blending and actually you know, do some of the infusion that I probably wouldn't do with those other two. I think that's kind of where we're headed. It's mm. a little bit more. Interesting. So what's the difference though? How can, why can you play uh, with your rice more than um, other, like Yamanishiki, which is like king of rice. Well, you know, Yamanishiki in even in Japan, you have to declare it's Yamanishiki when you go to a competition, and you you're put against all other Yamanishiki rice, and they all have a similar flavor mm. profile. Even if you use different yeasts and do all kinds of stuff, they still have a certain flavor profile. If you ask John Gartner, he'll probably tell you, I can tell that's Yamanishiki just from tasting it. You know, um, there's a certain it, it's it's a, it's a little bit more rigid is what you have. Great flavor. Don't get me wrong. It's fantastic. Um, it, it's just it's more rigid where I think uh, Cal Rose just seems to be a little bit more flexible molding. I can, it's like putty. I can do some things with it. Um, and the Sequoia rice also we're just finding out that it does do a lot of interesting uh, combinations, which work really well from from our experiments so far. Mm, meaning, uh, so your Sequoia saccharides um, tend to be more flexible with the terroir or um, you're talking about more like a milling or some more human elements? I'm talking milling and human elements. So uh, the the different yeast that we've tried with uh, Sequoia rice so far actually produces different products. It actually tastes very, very different. Where when we did the uh, Yamadanishiki, mm, okay. um, all the products had a similarity, even if we used different yeasts. Um, so I was, I was like, oh, yeah, you can kind of tell mm. that's Yamanishiki. And that's what I w- didn't want to do, be pigeonholed into that's a Yamanishiki uh, product. Right. So it's kind of like a more harmonious with many other elements, like the flavors that. Yes, that's probably a much better word. Yep. That's amazing. Exactly correct. Right. Hmm. Okay, so that's the tagline. How many? That's the sequoia sake rice. <laughs> I like okay. it. Thank you. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how do you describe um, the actual flavor profile sequoia sake rice? Like, you know, you said my John Gontner, who is like the sensei, the master of sake education to non Japanese speakers. Um, and also, he's like a tremendous person. But, like, Yamada Nishiki is Yamada Nishiki. And how do you describe the flavor profile of sequoia sake rice? Um, it's more complex, so it adds a lot of complexion to the, the sake itself. Um, and again, I'm only comparing it to like Cal Rose. Cal Rose, it, it like has a limiting factor just because it is table rice. So it, it hits a certain level of flavor profile and it doesn't get that same depth. Whereas sequoia rice... Um, it allows, like I was mentioning before, it allows the koji flavor to come become much more pronounced. 
So depending on what kind of koji we're using, I can get a lot of flavor profiles that I was not able to get with cow rose, which just adds a lot of depth in the beginning part of your mouth where you taste the koji. And then the yeast also, it just enhances the yeast. Um, it, so it, it has that, it, it, I'm not using just one yeast, so I'm using multiple yeasts so I can figure out how this all comes together. So it just has a really nice uh, flavor bouquet. It really has that harmony. Um, the uh, roundness in your mouth, the flavor profile on the side of your mouth also is just, it's more prevalent. So it, it just is a really impactful uh, sake. Hmm. So the Sakura Sake Rice sounds like a, like a cheerleader of everybody else who's going to come in to make sake. Is that right? You know, that's what I was always trained about with rice, uh, that you want the rice is the key, most important part but it actually should be the supporting role to all the other ingredients that you've got going in there. And that's what I was looking for. Mm. Um, so if you taste cow rose, it has flavor. It's great eating rice. If you taste sequoia rice, there's no flavor, but it makes great sake because of that. Mm. Right. Mm. Beautiful. So, um, so what you mentioned, you know, like uh, you get the more koji flavor, for example. So, when, for listeners who's not familiar with koji flavor, how do you describe it? Ah, so when we're making koji and we have visitors come in, the first thing they say, is that chestnuts? You know, it, it has a real chestnut smell. <laughs> um, and then they'll also say, you know, that smells like a little bit earthy, kind of musty, kind of like mushrooms, you know. So depending on the koji, it's somewhere in that area. Um, and then when you taste it, just the, the koji rice after it comes out, you can taste the sweetness. Um, I don't know if people have ever tasted amazake, but it, it has that little amazake kind of a flavor that kind of is romantic. I don't know how to describe it. It's a certain romantic flavor I, I really love. Um, so those are the kind of things I look for when I'm, I'm making uh, koji to see how it's going to be influenced inside the, the actual fermentation process. Mm, right. Interesting. So, like, you know, it's not the sake, but uh, uh, there is uh, what's called shokoji. Shokoji is an ingredient. And if mm -hmm. you, it's like, you know, koji grown in rice, and then you can marinate meat, for example, in shokoji overnight. The next day, the meat is way more tasty. And so, because koji breaks down, um, you know, the whole the protein. And I think to me, koji is kind of very fruity, like it's not sweet, but some kind of deep sweetness. And sometimes like there's a hint of butterscotch. It depends on what you have, but there's some very uh, diverse flavor profile, but it's almost like you're getting another layer or longer lasting flavor note. So that, that's to me, that's like a koji uh, flavor, like a magic of koji. We uh, sell koji to a bunch of uh, uh, restaurant chefs. They use it and things like that. But we're selling more now is uh, sakikasu, and we also age our sakikasu. Um, and the aged sakikasu is just an amazing ingredient for chefs right now. It's really popular. Um, so yeah, it, and it's again, it's all wow. related to the koji. Mm, how do you age? Uh, it, how how do you age sakikasu then? 
So that's <laughs> yeah, so I never aged sake kasu until my daughter came back from oh, she was studying and she started doing it. So you actually take the koji and you pound it down. We use a uh, potato masher, huge industrial potato masher, to get rid of all the air bubbles. So you're making it a solid. And then you put saran wrap over the top of it for a certain number of months. And then you take the saran wrap off and you let it just age naturally. Um, there's still about 3 to 4% alcohol in there, but it just picks up this incredible umami, deep, rich flavor profile. It's just amazing. Um, and, you know, mm, it, yeah. It, it's, yeah, <laughs> I'll have to send you some. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm definitely very, very interested in that. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes sense, right? Because you do mummy, which is always related to koji or the sake, sake kasu. Yes. Oh my God. That must be really good. I mean, if you, as you drink your sake and have it as tsumami, like snack, your life is better. <laughs> oh, yes. Totally better. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, um, right. <laughs> and uh, so now, this is a key question. Is it easy to grow sequoia sake rice? <laughs> oh, you're so funny. <laughs> um, so uh, in California, the, the normal size of acreage is 50 acres is what they plant. So it took me a long time just to find a farmer that would plant only three acres. Okay. So that was one hurdle. Then to actually grow uh, the rice. So here in California, 50 acres, they plant it by an airplane. They just drop the seeds over. So I had to convince a farmer to do a smaller field. Then I had to convince him to do drill planting, which means they actually have to use a machine and hand plant the seeds into the soil. Um, and then I had to convince him that I wouldn't ruin his equipment because the um, rice grows two to three times the same size as cow rows. And California has wind at the end of the year, so it can fall over and lodge, creating all kinds of problems. So it's not impossible because we do it, but it's not what farmers like to grow. Mm. Wow. Okay. So who is that courageous farm who's growing Sequoia Sequoia's right now? Again, synchronicities. I was introduced through my third partner, Warren, through a friend of his to a third farmer who introduced us to another farmer, which is Michael Van Dyke. And he is a second generation uh, organic rice farmer. And he, God bless his soul. He's just an amazing individual. He took a chance with us and he's been growing our rice now for three, four, five years. And he's just fantastic. Um, he doesn't curse me so much anymore, but in the beginning it was definitely um, you know, <laughs> a, a challenge. <laughs> right. And um, are there any other sake breweries that are interested in using Sequoia Sake Rice? Um, I've talked to a bunch of them. There are, people are interested in trying it. Everyone's always interested in trying rice, um, different rice, because it's, it's fun. Um, we've held back. Uh, it takes three years for the rice to get acclimated. So last year was the first year it came out of the lab fields in UC Davis. So this is in its new home. So I've got another two years of growing before the rice is actually where it is, feels comfortable and will grow consistently with what we know. So that's where I'm kind of looking for to say, okay, when I've got that consistency, I'm going to you know, open it up hopefully to some other people that want to try some. Mm, right. Because I think this, the secure secretary sounds too precious to be not to be used widely. And um, yeah, it makes sense, right? This is a 
Carlos rice-based, which is always important in this country. So, yeah, I, I really hope that other brewers start using it, uh, although uh, they have to find the good farmers to, <laughs> to work with despite the, the challenges. That is a challenge, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so is the sake you made with Sakura sake rice already available in the market? Um, it was available as of, well, we first gave it to our sake club uh, members in May and had them uh, review it, give us back feedback. Um, so we did ship last month our Genshu uh, with it. Um, we're still doing a couple tests with using it just for the, the Koji process and also doing it in the main mash. So it's not going to be probably available in the other products quite yet. Sorry, complicated answer there. Mm. <laughs> All right. So what was your feedback from uh, your club members? Um, uh, it was mixed. Um, so we have 120 club members and probably 60% of them said they liked the depth. And 40% said they, again, we gave them all uh, cow rice, all sequoia rice and then a mix of sequoia for the koji with cowros in the uh main mash and a lot of people like that blend so mm. it's you know yeah you have to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt and say okay what does that mean so that's why we're going to do some more testing and take it out to some professional uh wine sommeliers and some non-sake people to see what they they think about it mm, right i'm very curious so Please do keep me posted um, oh, yes. how people <laughs> react to it. So, and I think you've been doing truly inspiring and valuable to the entire sake industry in Japan and also abroad, of course. So, and also we started to see more sake brewers in this country. So how do you predict the future of uh, American sake? I see nothing but a fantastic future. It is really, really bright. Um, I mean, I think we're at the beginning of a new revolution. When we started in 2015, there was 11 micro socket brewers. Um, last count, I, I was told there's like 32. And I know of probably five new ones coming on board. Um, with Dasai coming into the market and a couple other that I know are coming into the market from Japan, um, this market is growing and it's going to continue to grow. I think the fact that the millennials are looking at for a healthier alcoholic beverage and sake is probably the least offensive, no sulfites, no glutens. Um, it's a, made from a rice-based product. Um, so it's just, you know, has a huge, huge uh, future. I really do think we're at the tipping point um, where um, middle America will start drinking it and middle America will start having micro sake breweries in their neighborhoods. Mm, right, I agree. So Sakurai Sambo Dasai Brewery, uh, he uh, joined us a couple episodes ago. And it, when he comes to New York and then open uh, the brewery, I think it's going to be really interesting because uh, he's going to educate CIA um, students about sake, who is going who are going to carry the future of American cuisine anyway. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, like you said, it's a tipping point. And uh yeah, and this development of new sake rice, I think people have been really wait, waiting for this to happen. And you made it, you proved it that it's possible. So, yeah, I'm so glad um, you spent this eight years and uh, became very successful. <laughs> Tell my partners that, will you? Congratulations. <laughs> 
Yeah, with congratulations. I really、Thank、mean、you. that. So,、uh, so what are your plans and dreams for the future? Ah, plans and dreams for the future. We always have plans and dreams.、Um, when I started this, I had three goals. One goal was to make sake that、uh, people like to drink. So, winning the sake, the Tokyo sake competition in 2019, that proved that goal、uh, was reached. I was really happy with that. My second one was to、uh, grow sake rice. So, last year we did that. My third goal, which has been pushed back because of the COVID, is to have a major university start teaching sake making so people don't have to fly all the way to Japan to learn it and can do it locally. And that was supposed to happen with the cross pollination between Nagata University and UC Davis, which was supposed to take place last year, but of course it did not. So, talking with those guys, it seems like it's probably going to start up again in 2022. So, that is my last big goal. For、uh, what I hope to accomplish with this、uh, Sequoia project.、Um, future, I just hope I can continue to make better sake every time I make sake, honestly, and educate more people. I think more people、mm. should learn about sake. Right. Well, you are such a creative entrepreneurial person. So I think the first three goals sounds like just chapter one, and you have like <laughs> nine more chapters to finish. So I look forward to. Uh, more plans and dreams in your, in your mind coming up. It sounds like I think it's, it never、Thank、ends.、You. So, yeah. So, where can we find you online and social media?、Uh, online, we're at Sequoia Sake, all one word, dot com. And we're at Instagram, Sequoia underline Sake,、uh, Facebook, Sequoia Sake.、Um, those are the mainstays.、Um, and、uh, if you're in the neighborhood, come on in. <laughs> okay, I think we can、uh, now more relatively more freely travel. So I、yes. think you're going to be busy. <laughs> Looking、right. forward to that. Okay. Seeing people's faces again. Yeah. And also,、uh, I have to say,、uh, you know, I highly recommend that、uh, our, our listeners watch the PBS documentary about Sequoia Sake.、Uh, the link is on your website, right? Yes, it is. Right. It's an amazing. I think it's still on. It was on,、um, uh, what was it? Amazon. So it was there for a while, but it's also online.、Um, and it's been playing around the country. I get calls from、um, Iowa and asking if they can buy our sake because they just saw us online or I saw, just saw us on TV. So I think the COVID、uh, lockdown,、mm. people watched a lot of TV. Right. That was really interesting and beautiful.、Um, they made us look good. I could not believe that. It was gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth. That's the fact. So, yeah, that's another congratulations on your、Thank、journey you. to make the whole thing. So, all right. So, thank you for joining us today, Jake. Thank you for having us. All right. So,、uh, keep me posted and、uh, hopefully I'll have you back again in the new year. Thank、future. you very much. We will. Absolutely. Okay, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikogatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin、uh, Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, 
heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.